That's true. <laughs> I see you. <laughs> All right. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you again for this church family and for these meetings that you have appointed. Uh, we're grateful for every opportunity we get to open your word together and to be encouraged by you. Help us, Father, to, to do just that, to to delight in you and to behold your glory and to be encouraged by you tonight. Do all of this, Father, so that you would be magnified in our hearts. In Christ's name, amen. All right. Well, have you ever wondered why scriptures? Why the scriptures? So we established last week that general revelation is Enough to show us that God is, right? Enough to show us uh, that we are accountable to him. But general revelation, that is reason, nature, God's providence, is not enough to save somebody's soul. So, I mean, it's clear that we do need something else. We need special revelation. But that question is still, why did it need to be written down? Like, why couldn't special revelation simply have been passed down orally from generation to generation? Why did we need uh, a collection of books that we call the Word of God? It's a good question. In fact, you know what? <clears throat> I think before I said, let's, let's try to, uh, for the recording's sake, not discuss so much, but I'm going to break, break some rules today. So what do you guys think? Why special revelation? Why did it need to be written down into scriptures? Or why did God choose to do it that way? There was no king in Israel, so he said that they were trying to remember. Uh, so he said, uh, Christian said, there's no king in Israel, so everyone did what was right in their own eyes. How does that tie into the scriptures, like the um, yeah. written without word? That, without the scripture, then it says what you think. Boom. Give me your money. Okay. Boom. Yeah, great point. So we have this season in Israel's history, actually many seasons, where everyone's just doing what they want to do. Yeah. They, they're, they're not following anyone. So at that point... If it was if special revelation was simply orally passed down, it could be lost. There's nothing codified. There's nothing permanent. It's just whatever is going on in, in any particular generation. That's a good point. Good. Why else? Why else do you think that God chose to, to write down his word or have his word written down as opposed to just being passed down from generation to generation? Yeah, so, you know, we, we acknowledge we want, we need special revelation, but why did God choose to have it written down? Why can't, why, why do you think it wasn't just passed down from generation to generation orally? Good, so record-keeping throughout the ages of what God has said, what God has done, written down for all posterity. Good, right on. A good thought experiment there. And that is really, in large part, what we're going to be covering tonight is this question. And in addition to this question of why would God's word be written down, uh, we'll also look at what we consider to be holy scriptures and why we consider those particular books to be holy scriptures and not other books. So in order to start our study, let's take a look at, on your handout, the statement from paragraph one of chapter one of the confession, the first statement there that you see. It says, therefore, it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diversified manners to reveal himself and to declare that his will unto his church. 
So last week, in our last session, we covered how general revelation, that is human reason, nature, and God's provision, again, that's enough to make man inexcusable for refusing to worship the God who is clearly there. But it's not enough to know that which is necessary for salvation. So God communicated with his people in another way that we refer to as special revelation. Special revelation. And the confession says that it pleased God at various times and in different, time, different ways, rather, to reveal himself and to declare his will to his people. And to see that, let's take a look at Hebrews 1, 1 together. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Hebrews 1 begins with this verse. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So the author is about to make the argument that now, in the new covenant with Christ's advent, God has spoken to us with a greater revelation, and that is his son. But before he sent his son into time and history, he long ago spoke, Hebrews 1.1 says, at many times and in many ways. So for God's purposes, uh, he didn't just drop all of his special revelation all at once. He didn't just collect everything he wanted to say to the world and just drop it right in the very beginning with Moses. He certainly could have done that. He could have just released all of the Old Testament right there with Moses, right? But it pleased him not to do that. And instead, he spoke at many times. The book of Genesis was written in the 1400s BC, and the rest of the Old Testament books were written throughout the centuries until the 400s BC. So the, the writings of the Old Testament books are pretty well spread out between the 1400s BC stopping in the 400s BC. So we can see that God spoke at many times in the Old Testament era. He also spoke, Hebrews 1.1 says, in many ways, in many ways. So when we talk about special revelation, we're talking, we're including the scriptures in that, but we're not only talking about the scriptures. The scriptures themselves actually have accounts of God's speaking to people in various ways. He spoke directly to people. He spoke through prophets. He spoke through visions. He spoke through theophanies or Christophanies. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, Christian said that he spoke through a donkey once. Yeah, he spoke to Balaam through a donkey. Uh, yeah, uh, a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire showing that he is there with his people. Good. So God didn't speak to every single individual directly. He didn't go to every single person in Israel and speak to them directly. But he spoke to all of his people, whom the author calls our fathers, which means our forefathers, by the prophets, Hebrews 1.1 1, 1 says. And the prophets, when we read the word prophets, it doesn't mean that it's only referring to like uh, Daniel through Malachi or something like that, or just the minor and major prophets, but, but really this was anyone through whom God spoke. In fact, Moses, who we wouldn't necessarily call him a prophet, um, though he was, he foretells that God would send a prophet greater than him, implying, I am a prophet, but God's going to send a prophet greater than me. And in Jewish thinking, uh, anyone who wrote Old Testament scriptures, they were considered prophets. They were included in this category of prophets. What were you going to say, brother? Oh, right on, right on. Yeah, absolutely. So whenever, so in, in their thinking, and correctly, whenever anyone wrote an Old Testament book, they were also prophesying. Keep that in mind for later. So, Yes, because general revelation is not sufficient to save, it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diversified manners to reveal himself and to declare that his will unto his church. God spoke in many times and in many ways to his people. And to that we say, praise God. Praise God that he did that. We can imagine a, a man angrily shouting at the sky, why won't you answer me? He assumes that if God exists, that God is obligated to speak to him, that God is obligated to speak to his creation. But in reality, God is not obligated to do anything. 
He's not obligated to say anything. So in the truest sense, he, he has the right to remain silent. Oh, sure. Sure, yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, so God reveals himself in, to everyone in, in nature, right? I guess I'm more talking about specific messages that people expect from God. Yeah. Right. Because we are made in his image. Sure. And we all need things to cover the guilty conscience because we are made in his image. And that is, it is not like direct speaking, but it is, it is, it is, uh, um, sure, sure. It's just, it's just the fact that we are made in the image of God. We, uh, without, before we marred this image, we know what's right and wrong. We know what pleases him. Uh, and we, we suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So, yeah, we get revelation from God even in human nature, true. We don't deserve any revelation from God. And because we don't deserve any revelation from God, then any revelation from him is gracious. And not only did he speak one or two things to our forefathers, he spoke a lot to our forefathers. He spoke so much that you have a hard time getting through the Bible in a year, right? That's how much he revealed to us, his people. He spoke to them for us. The scriptures, though they were not originally written to us, they were written for us. So thank God. So thank God. And not just that, but because God spoke it many times and in many ways, you get to watch this progressive revelation and unfolding of Jesus Christ. Because God didn't speak all at once, he spoke throughout history, you get to watch this progressive revelation of Jesus Christ. We see him as the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head in Genesis 3. And then from then on, we see greater and greater revelations of what this snake crusher, what this Messiah would be like until he appeared. So again, thank God that he spoke to our fathers at many times and in many ways. He did something else for our benefit besides doing that. Take a look at the next header on your outline. And afterward... For the better preserving and propagating of the truth, and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world, to commit the same wholly unto writing, which makes the holy scriptures to be most necessary, those former ways of God's revealing his will unto his people being now completed. Let me put that in ed terms, layman's terms. Basically, what's being said is that after God spoke in those many times in many and various ways, he put down his will for us in writing. And he did so for these purposes, to better preserve the truth, to make it easier to propagate the truth, to make the establishment of the church more sure, and to make the comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and the world more sure. It's because of those things that the Holy Scriptures is are most necessary. That was kind of our, our question at the very beginning. Why do we need the Scriptures? It's for those things. Yeah. Do we do ourselves a disservice not realizing that uh, books and writing is a tool? Because that was not taught us at all. Like most of our teachers we read, and that's like, we, there are books everywhere. We can't look without seeing a book. Right. Mm -hmm. right? It was something special and unique because it was very, it was God's word. Where That's a good point. Now we have millions of, you know, everybody has a book. Yeah, Cedric makes a good point. So we, we kind of uh, take for granted he's saying writing stuff down. Because, I mean, you can, anyone can go publish themselves on Amazon now, right? And so it's like, it's not a big deal if you say, oh, I'm published, big deal. 
you're self-published, whatever. But back then, paper especially was so scarce, so valuable that you don't just write stuff, like, unless it's very important. So they recognized that what they were writing was very important. That's a great point. It's a great point. And yep. It was either papyrus or vellum. It was either papyrus or vellum. Or vellum. Right. Yes. And so it wasn't cheap. Wasn't cheap. Yeah, there wasn't there was an Office Max or Staples you could run down and grab a scroll. Like, yeah, that's a great point. So writing this down, they knew that what was going on was special. That's a very good point. So again, uh, where were we? Where were we? It's because of those things that the Holy Scripture is most necessary, especially because the former ways that God used to reveal to his people are over. We'll, we'll go over that in a little bit. There, but... In a, in a nutshell, there is no more need for prophecy. There's no more need for visions. There's no more theophanies because God's word is fully revealed to us now in the Old and the New Testaments. Amen. So let's look at the scriptures on this subject in this long statement, starting with Proverbs 22, Proverbs 22, 19 through 21. Proverbs 22, 19 through 21. So in Proverbs 22, the author is encouraging the reader to listen to the words of the wise for the reader's benefit. And then in verses 19 through 21 of Proverbs 22, we read, That your trust may be in the Lord, I have made them known to you, even to you. Have I not written for you 30 sayings of counsel and knowledge to make you know what is right and true, that you may give a true answer to those who sent you? And then after saying that, the author would provide, 30 wise sayings. And the desired outcome of writing down these sayings for this reader, as we see in verse 19, is that your trust may be in the Lord. So the author assumes that if he writes them down, it'll help the reader to trust in the Lord. The stated purpose of these 30 sayings of counsel and knowledge, look at verse 21, to make you know what is right and true. Did he need to write them down? Maybe not. But because he did write them down, uh, it is written down in perpetuity for his original audience first and then now for God's people forever because he wrote them down. So now we can permanently read in those 30 sayings what is right and what is true. And the result of knowing what's right and true is also in verse 21, that you may give a true answer to those who sent you. It's kind of unclear what is, uh, what's being referred to in that phrase, those who sent you. But whatever the case is, having those 30 sayings written down equips the reader to be able to give a true answer. Because the author wrote down those 30 sayings of counsel and knowledge, the reader now knows what is right and what is true, and he's able to give a true answer. Now, while that verse is specifically talking about these 30 sayings that the author is about to write in Proverbs 22, uh, we can uh, see how it applies to the scriptures as a whole. That we may trust in the Lord, he has written down for us his counsel. He has written down for us his knowledge that he wants us to have. And in doing so, he made us know what is right and what is true. And so now we can give a true answer to other people. And praise God again that he did so. Because he wrote it down for us, or he had it written down for us, there is no uncertainty for the people of God. If you're like me, you have a terrible memory. And you can't remember exactly what someone said to you yesterday. That's why we have, by the way, uh, in our members meetings, we have members minutes, right? We have a, a record of what was said two months ago. And everyone's trying to like, is that what was said last time? And then we just vote on it, and hopefully we did remember it correctly from last time. And, and that's kind of how we operate as a church. And because we're so for forgetful, we need things written down. You need things on record. And because God's word is on record, we can always know what he said. We can always know what he did. And again, what a gift that that is. What a gift that that is. Next, let's look at Romans 15.4. Romans 15.4. So in Romans 15, Paul is arguing that those who have stronger faith should bear with those who have weaker faith instead of being focused on just your own preferences. 
and he exhorts the church to look out for the good of his neighbor to build him up. And in verse 3, he gives Christ as an example, or the example, or the motivation for doing this. And he writes in verse 3, For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So he's quoting there Psalm 69.9, and he's applying it to Jesus Christ correctly, of course. And then he says in verse 4, our passage, Romans 15.4, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now, what is Paul referring to when he's saying what was written in the former days? What is he referring to when he says the scriptures? What's that? The Old Testament in particular. The Old Testament in particular. Uh, These were what was written in former days. And the Old Testament, Paul argues in verse 4, was written for our instruction. So let's review what he's just said. He exhorts them to live a certain way, reminding them that Christ lived that way, citing an Old Testament passage to prove it, and then he gives us uh, uh, a hint on how to read the Old Testament, therefore, this side of the cross. In doing that, he gives us a way on how to look at the Old Testament. So if we reverse engineer what Paul did, here's what we should do. We look at an Old Testament passage, we see how it points forward to Christ, and then we live accordingly. That's a great way to look at the Old Testament. Look at the Old Testament, see how it points to Christ, and live accordingly. And in that way, the Old Testament, through Christ, was written for our instruction. So there are some who think that, that we don't need the Old Testament at all in order to live for Christ. I honestly used to think that way. It's a lot easier, it's a lot cleaner to think that way. Just look at the New Testament laws and there you get your ethics that way. Uh, the, the issue with that is that um, the New Testament writers don't think that way. <laughs> so they, they don't think that way. So while the New Testament really does cover well what we are called to do as Christians, and certainly I, th- I think you can know a lot about what it is to follow Christ from the New Testament, the, the New Testament writers, like in this verse and others, tell us that the Old Testament is useful in instructing us. So don't throw it out. Christ quotes the Old Testament. Paul quotes the Old Testament. All the other New Testament writers quote the Old Testament. And if they saw fit to point us to the Old Testament for instruction and exhortation, we should look there as well. The Old Testament helps us to fully understand the New Testament, and the New Testament helps us to rightly interpret and apply the Old Testament. The result of the Old Testament scriptures having been written down for our instruction, look at verse 4 again, is that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So when we're rightly encouraged, uh, or rather when we're rightly uh, instructed by the scriptures, then we are given endurance, we're given encouragement, and when we endure in the encouragement of the scriptures, then we have hope. And again, we have this because God's word was written down. First in the Old Testament and then in the New. Thank God. Thank God that he was all wise to have his word written down for our instruction and for our hope. Let's look at one more passage on this subject before we move on in the confession. 2 Peter 1, verses 19 through 20. 2 Peter 1, 19 through 20. In 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter is making this argument that they didn't just believe in clever myths when it came to Jesus. They actually heard God say at the Mount of Transfiguration, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And they actually saw Jesus at the Transfiguration where he was for a moment radiantly transformed. But beyond just being a witness to that awesome event, Peter writes in 2 Peter Chapter 1, verses 19 through 20. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from one's own interpretation. The idea here is that 
while Peter's experience at the transfiguration was incredible, all it really did was more fully confirm what was written in the scriptures. As a matter of fact, that was really the purpose of all the signs and wonders that the Savior performed. Every miracle that he did was mainly about showing that he is the Messiah of whom the Old Testament foretold. So ultimately, Peter doesn't appeal to his incredible experience. He appeals to the scriptures. He says of them in the middle of verse 19, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Pay attention to the scriptures like a lamp shining in a dark place. And he tells them to keep doing that until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. That's end times language. And it's talking about on that final day when Christ returns. In other words, pay attention to the scriptures to the end. And he adds an important underlying reason for them to do so in verse 20. Look at verse 20. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from one's own interpretation. So as we said earlier, it was, it was standard Jewish thinking that not only were the prophets prophets, like the ones who were officially called prophets, but also anyone who penned scripture, they were also considered prophets, and rightly so. So the argument that Peter is making is that nothing in the scriptures came from one's own interpretation. We don't know why the authors of the confession didn't cite verse 21, but we really need it to rightly understand verse 20. So look at it. 2 Peter 1, 21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What Peter is saying is that all prophecies, including the very words that were written down in Scripture, were men speaking or writing from God the Holy Spirit as he led them. So while, yes, I mean, you read the different books, you, you can read the different personalities of the writers, the different tones, uh, the different perspectives of the human authors, but ultimately, all Scripture is God-breathed, 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is inspired by God. All Scripture is God's very Word. And because it was written down, we now have God's Word preserved and more easily propagated. Again, oh, the wisdom and the graciousness of God to us. So we do see that the Scriptures being written down has served to better preserve and propagate the truth and that it has greatly helped to establish and comfort the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan in the world. Thank God for the scriptures. We need the scriptures. And God has given us what we need. Now, there's one thing that the confession says that these passages that we went through don't necessarily prove. So we need to spend a little extra time on it. And it says this. It says, the former ways of God's revealing his will unto his people are now completed. In other words, God no longer works through prophets. We could expand on that to include sign gifts, um, like speaking in tongues, faith healing. So to help us on this subject, we're going to rely heavily on, on an article by a brother named Thomas Schreiner called Why I Am a Cessationist. Why I Am a Cessationist. And here's the argument in summary. We're not going to, books have been written about this, so there's going to be just a high-level overview on this subject. But he argues, and I agree, that cessationism best fits with both scripture and experience. Now, scripture, of course, takes priority over experience, but our experiences are going to confirm what the scripture says. So here's the argument. First of all, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2.20, that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. The, the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So everything that we need to know for salvation and sanctification has been given to us through the teaching of the apostles and prophets. And all of their teaching is now found in the New Testament. It's now found in the scriptures. We made that argument last week. Hebrews 1.2, we looked at Hebrews 1.1. 1, 1, but Hebrews 1-2 tells us that in these last days, God has spoken to us through his Son. So we don't need any more words from him to, 
to explain what Jesus Christ accomplished in his ministry, his death, and resurrection. We have it. Instead, if you look at Jude verse 3, it says that we are to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. So even in Jude, he's writing and saying, we have the Christian doctrine that we need. Now you just need to contend for it. The body of doctrine that we are to contend for has already been delivered to us once for all. We don't have Peter anymore. We don't have Paul. We don't have John anymore. We don't have apostles in the church. Why? Because the foundation that they were called to lay has already been laid. In 1 Corinthians 15.8, Paul clearly says he's the last apostle. So if, you, if there's anyone claiming to be an apostle, they're lying because Paul says I'm the last one. And also in Acts 12.2, when one of the apostles dies, James, they don't replace him. They don't replace him. These are the only apostles. Apostles also, they had a very specific criteria in order to be an apostle. You had to have seen the risen Lord. You had to have been commissioned by him to be an apostle. And since uh, no one ever since the apostles has fit the criteria, there are no apostles anymore. The apostles had a very unique role in church history, and that was to help lay the foundation for the church. That was to establish Christian doctrine. So, if we are able to see that the gift of apostle is ended with the death of the apostles, then it's quite possible that other gifts have ceased as well. Because the foundation was not only laid by the apostles, but it was also laid by the prophets. The foundation was laid by the apostles and prophets in Ephesians 2.20. So we can conclude that since the foundation has already been laid, then the gifts of apostle and prophets have ceased. Why were prophets needed in the New Testament times? Let me ask you that. Why, why would there need, be a need for prophets after Christ ascended to heaven? So yeah, I mean, Hebrews 1, 2 says that he, that, that he has revealed himself in his son, right? So you'd say, we don't need anything after that. But even after Christ rose and ascended to heaven, there were prophets in the New Testament church. Why? Why was there a need for prophecy in the New Testament church? Who was the prophet in the New Testament church? The gift of prophecy in the New Testament church. Prophecy? Sure. Oh, yeah, they, but they were called prophets, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. But I hear what you're saying, though. So let's just say gift of prophecy. Why was the gift of prophecy needed in the New Testament church? True, true. Yeah. Yeah, so prophecy is not just like foretelling the future. It's just foretelling God's word. Right on. Yeah, so they're showing the prophets, the apostles are speaking the truth about how the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That's very true. Another reason why prophets were needed in these New Testament times is because they didn't have the New Testament canon for a while. They didn't have it. They didn't have the complete canon of Scripture yet. So in place of having a complete canon, the church had authoritative and infallible teaching from the apostles and the prophets. And those gifts were needed during the apostolic age. But as that necessity died out with the completion of the Bible, then so did the gifts. This is the argument. Yes? And I was going to say that's one of the reasons why Paul was so influential. Because he was a zealous Jew who was learning in Samaria and knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards. And so that's why, because I love it when it says, and Paul reasoned from the scriptures. Right. What was in the New Testament? Yeah. Yeah, so this is one of the reasons you're saying that Paul was so influential was that he was this up-and-coming Pharisee trained by the best of the best, Gamaliel, and he always reasoned from the scriptures to the Jews why Jesus is the Messiah. That's a great point. God knew what he was doing when he chose Paul to be the, the apostle to the Gentiles. So that's prophecy. What about tongues? Well, tongues and prophecy were closely related because tongues is essentially prophecy in a different language. If prophecy is no longer needed, 
then prophecy in another language also is no longer needed. What about miracles and healings? Well, first, we want to affirm, first of all, that God still does heal, and God still does miraculous things today. So we shouldn't stay away from praying for healing or praying for miraculous things because we don't think that there is a gift of those things anymore. But the primary function of those gifts was simply to affirm the teaching of the apostles. And, and again, when it comes to experience, we just look out and see what's going on in the world. The healing that goes on among faith healers is very different from what we read in the New Testament. If it wasn't, then those faith healers, like Pastor Olo said, they need to be hanging out at the hospitals. They need to be going there and healing people and proclaiming the gospel so that people would start walking and, and be uh, both physically and spiritually, right? But we don't, yeah, St. Jude's would be out of business. But again, we don't see that anywhere. We don't see it anywhere. We look again at our, at our experience. Throughout church history, there have been scattered mentions of miracles throughout church history here and there. But it wasn't until the rise of Pentecostalism in the 1800s that we saw suddenly this expectation in the church that lots of people should be speaking in tongues and lots of people should be prophesying, etc. You wonder, why does the confession not make a stronger argument to say that prophecy had ceased? Because no one was arguing otherwise. No one was arguing otherwise. The Roman Catholic Church wasn't saying there were prophets everywhere. They would say that the Pope, if he said anything, that was infallible. But they weren't saying that the spiritual gift of prophecy was still active in the church. So church history does not support the idea of the widespread continuation of gifts like prophecy. And finally, again, just from our own experience, we just don't see these gifts like they're described in the scriptures. We don't see people just being all of a sudden being able to speak a language that they don't know. We don't see people go from complete blindness to all of a sudden being completely sighted or from paraplegia to suddenly walking and leaping, right? That's what we see in the Bible. Our experience is not infallible, but it does show, it does confirm what we see in the scriptures about these gifts. No, I was just saying, I was thinking about the, the tongue of fire. We don't see anybody walking around with right. fire. I do lots of magic shows. I've never seen any of those guys do that. <laughs> yeah, so we don't, we see in the, in the upper room, this tongues, it looks like tongues of fire descending on the apostles, and, and not just the apostles, but the 120 that were there with them, right? Uh, so again, much more has been written on this subject. We're not covering this all at once, but just for our purposes, let's tie it back to the main point. The main point of saying that those former ways of God's revealing his will to us have been completed is really just to emphasize how important the scriptures are for us. We don't have an apostle coming in here uh, preaching to us with the same authority as the scriptures. But we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. We have God's very word right here in the Bible. So let's review this statement again in your outline. It pleased the Lord at sundry times in diversified manners to reveal himself and to declare that his will unto his church and afterward for the better preserving and propagating of the truth and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world to commit the same holy unto writing, which makes the Holy Scriptures to be most necessary, those former ways of God's revealing his will unto his people being now completed. Before we move on to the next point, let's just think through how we can actually apply what we've learned so far. Why is this important? Here are two quick applications for us. Number one, thank God for giving us the scriptures. Thank God for giving us the scriptures. Because we have them, we, have, we can access the truth anytime, and we can share it with others anytime. And when you're fighting with the flesh or you're down because you're troubled by Satan or the world, you can run to God's word, God himself, for comfort. Thank God. And secondly, use the scriptures in your war against sin. Use the scriptures in your war against sin. Think about how the Savior overcame Satan's temptations. He quoted the scriptures. He didn't need to quote the scriptures. He's God himself. Anything he says is scripture. But the scriptures were sufficient 
in extinguishing the darts of the enemy. Do you suppose that God wants us to do what Jesus did there? Of course, of course. So let's move on to the next paragraph of the confession. We're now moving into paragraph two of chapter one. Paragraph two of chapter one, which says this. Under the name of Holy Scripture, or the word of God written, are now contained all the books of the Old and New Testaments, which are these. And then, the conf- it's not in your outline, but the confession then lists the Old Testament books from Genesis to Malachi and the New Testament books from Matthew to Revelation. So in the confession, all the books that we have in the Bible, in our Bible, the ESV Bible at least, uh, or many translations, are, are the same books that the confession lists for us. Now the confession really doesn't make an argument for why these books in particular. It just says it. These are the books. These are the books of the scripture that we're talking about. But it's important for you to know why it's these books. I mean, how do you know that these 66 books are all scripture in the Bible? And, and how do you know that only these 66 books in our Bible are the scripture? Just out of curiosity, I mean, raise your hand if you feel like you can confidently explain why these books in particular and nothing else are scripture. Got like some hands? Okay, good. So we got a couple hands. That's good. That's good. We should all feel confident to be able to say these are the scriptures, not the apocryphal writings, not the Book of Mormon, not anything else. Only these books are 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 from God. So to help us with this question, we're going to rely on another article. I, I cheated a lot today. Uh, it's on God Questions, and the article is called "How Do We Decide Which Books Belong in the Bible?" Since the Bible does not say which books belong in the Bible. I mean, wouldn't that have been great in Revelation? And here are the list of books. But it doesn't have that in the scriptures. So there's a good article that helps us to answer this question. And what we're talking about is a subject called canonization, which is really recognizing what is the word of God, not deciding what is the word of God. That's important. The church recognizes what's God's word, not deciding what's God's word. Yes, sir. It had nothing to do with the Council of Nicaea, which was dated, was it? Three-something. 325. It had nothing to do with this Council of Nicaea or the other councils in late 300s to establish what are the books of the scriptures. God is the one who determined the canon. He is the one that inspired the books of the Bible. The church simply recognizes what is the books of the Bible. The canon of scripture was not created by the church. The church simply recognized the canon of scripture. And the criteria that the church used for recognizing and collecting the word of God are as follows. I wish I put these in your outline, but I'll just, I'll I'll say them and I'll repeat them if you're writing them down. There are five of them. Number one, was the book written by a prophet of God? Was the book written by a prophet of God? Two, Was the writer authenticated by miracles to confirm his message? Was the writer authenticated by miracles to confirm his message? If you miss any of these, you can come get them later. Number three, does the book tell the truth about God with no falsehood or contradiction? Does the book tell the truth about God with no falsehood or contradiction? Number four, Does the book evince a divine capacity to transform lives? Does the book evince a divine capacity to transform lives? And number five, was the book accepted as God's word by the people to whom it was delivered? First delivered. Was the book accepted as God's word by the people to whom it was first delivered? In the early New Testament uh, church community, Closely related to the question, was the book written by a prophet of God, was this question of, did the book receive apostolic approval? Did the apostles approve of this book? Remember, the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, so it's reasonable to accept whatever books the apostles accepted. Matthew, for example, the very first book of the New Testament, is canonical because the author himself was an apostle. Mark wasn't an apostle, but he was closely associated with the apostle Peter, 
so that that gospel was also accepted in the early church. So when the New Testament was being written, the individual books and the letters that were being written were immediately accepted as God's word, and they were copied, and they were circulated to other places. Remember, again, paper is precious. You don't take something that you're like, eh, this may be God's word, and write it down, and let me just send it out. They knew what they were doing. They were intentional. What's that? And they were everywhere, right. Right. Amen. Yeah, you. Re- That's right. You recognize it as God's word. I have to write this down. I have to translate it into other languages, and I got to disseminate it all over the place. Yeah. What I was going to say is that as an apologetic, I've used this a number of times with people who question the veracity of the Bible. Is that a bunch of years back when Oprah Winfrey was having her Book of the Month Club, mm-hmm. she had a gentleman write a book called A Million Little Pieces. Within a week, it got back to her that almost all the book was made up. Mm-hmm. Nonsense. He had to come back with his tail between his legs and apologize. So the thing that we know about the New Testament is that there was no contradictory writing mm-hmm. at all for any of it. Right. It would have been, it would have stuck out like a sore thumb. Right, right. And there's none of it. No, none of it was ever contested. Right. So Christian uh, points back to this example of Oprah recommending this book for her book of the month. And uh, after a while, it came out that everything that that book was completely fabricated. So she had to go back and redact her recommendation and uh, eventually basically pull it off of her list or whatever. But the New Testament writers, that never happens. There's never a, oh, you know what, Second Peter, not good. And Paul's writing that. Anything that you see as a second letter from Peter, don't accept that into your church. It's like there's none of that for any of the books of the, of the New Testament. So that's a great point there. So we have these, oh, uh, did you have your hand up, Anita, earlier? Okay. All righty. <laughs> oh, number four was, does the book evince the divine capacity to transform lives? So the church at Thessalonica received Paul's word as the word of God. If you look at 1 Thessalonians 2.13, you, you don't have to look there now, but, but they received Paul's word as the word of God. And Colossians 4.16 informs us that Paul's letters were circulating among the churches, even during the New Testament times, the apostolic times. We also learned in an earlier session that Peter considered Paul's writings as part of the rest of the scriptures, 2 Peter 3, 15 through 16. And Paul quotes Luke and calls it scripture. Okay? So you may have heard before that the canon wasn't finally and fully established until 393 and 397 AD. That's what skeptics like to say, right? And that is when the church formally canonized the New Testament. But what that doesn't mean is that even though they got together and said, yep, these are the New Testament books, that doesn't mean that the church didn't recognize those books before those councils. Church councils weren't just like random meetings where they decided on something. They, they usually happened because of some sort of error in the church that was brewing. There was some sort of controversy in the church. So in, in these two councils in 393 and 397 A.D., they affirmed that these 27 books were the same 27 books that the first century bishops were accepting as well. And there has been general consensus throughout church history on these books in particular. In other words, the councils in the 390s, they didn't revolutionize the canon, as some would think that they were trying to do. They didn't take out books they didn't like. They didn't add books that more suited their passions. All they did was they confirmed the consensus of church history since the first century. So that's, that's how we get the New Testament. Again, the early church recognizing what's God's word and compiling it together. Yeah. And the only reason they did that is there was a lot of books that were coming out. Oh, look what I found, more scripture. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... That's really why they did it, is to right. preserve more later for us. 
right? So Marty is saying that the reason why they even got together and did this was because in those later centuries, after the apostles had passed and the apostles' uh, protégés had passed, all these people are coming up, hey, this book too, why don't we include this book? Mm -hmm. And so they had to get together and say, no, these are the books that, have, that we contend for. They've always recognized this. Yeah, Gnostic well, Gospels. yeah, Gnostic Gospels, Gnostic Gospels in particular. And there's only a, there's only a handful of copies of them. Right, right. So it's not like they were. Yeah. Sacred. Yeah. The Gospel of Thomas is not good for you uh, women. Well, actually, it is okay because in the Gospel of Thomas, someone asks, "Well, how will women get into heaven?" Because they're women. And and he's told, "Don't worry, I'm going to turn them into men." <laughs> That's in the Gospel of Thomas. So that one did not make the cut. But yeah, as far as the Old Testament goes, that was the New Testament we're talking about. For us, the Old Testament is a lot easier because the Old Testament that we have is the same Old Testament that Jesus had, and he affirmed all of it. So that, that makes it pretty cut and dry for us. So we can have confidence that the Old Testament that we have and the New Testament that we have is the Word of God written. The paragraph of the Confession concludes all of which are given by the inspiration of God to be the rule of faith and life. So that we already saw in a previous session, but just by way of reminder, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. All of these books, these 66 books, are inspired by God, and all of them are useful in conforming us to Christ's likeness in faith and in life. Now, because these books, these 66 books, are the Holy Scripture, because they're the Word of God written, and because all of them are inspired by God and profitable for faith and life, then here's one quick application for you. Have a high view of every book of the Bible. Have a high view of every book of the Bible. Many Christians have yet to read every single book of the Bible. They prefer Ephesians to Habakkuk, and I get that. Because while Ephesians can be sometimes more helpful in your particular circumstances, Habakkuk is no less the word of God. It's no less necessary for you as a Christian. And you don't want to meet Habakkuk all embarrassed like, I never read your book, right? <laughs> so be encouraged to read all of God's word. It's a good practice, by the way, to read all of the books once or twice a year. I'm not going to make that a law for you, but it's a great practice to read all of the Bible once or twice a year. It takes 13 minutes a day to get through the Bible in a year. I know it, it looks like a lot, but in 13 minutes a day, you can go through it once, and that's at the pace of an audio Bible. Mm -hmm. So if you feel like you're a slow reader, throw on an audio Bible and read along with it, okay? Even though there is, really, there is great benefit of just taking one verse and chewing on it and meditating on it, there is also great benefit in taking in all of the Word of God on a right, regular basis. Moving on. Paragraph 3 of chapter 1 in the Confession, we read this. The books commonly called Apocrypha, not being of divine inspiration, are no part of the canon or rule of the scripture, and therefore are of no authority to the church of God, nor to be any otherwise approved or made use of than other human writings. So there are additional books that have been used in church history called the Apocrypha. And here's what they are. Apocryphal books were written approximately for the Old Testament Apocryphal books, were written between the third century BC and the first century AD. In an essay by Michael J. Kruger, we learn that they were used by the Jews of that time period. They did use the Apocrypha, but there's little evidence to suggest that they thought that the Apocrypha was scripture. Just because they use it doesn't mean that they considered it scripture. Matter of fact, Josephus, who's a, a renowned first century Jewish historian, he did not consider the Apocrypha scripture. And more importantly, than Josephus, none of the New Testament books cite any book of the Apocrypha as scripture. There's also an established belief in that time that inspired prophecy had stopped by 400 BC. Everyone believed that. Inspired prophecy had stopped at 400 BC, and in Jesus's time, they acknowledged that. Even a couple of books in the Apocrypha acknowledge that there hasn't been any prophecy since the 400s BC. Now, when you get to the Middle Ages in church history, you start to see mixed views on the Apocrypha. And by the time of the Reformation, now it's a point of contention. It's a point of controversy during the Reformation because 
there are several false doctrines that come out of the Apocrypha, such as purgatory. It wasn't until 1546 even, in the Council of Trent, that the Roman Catholic Church declared the Apocrypha henceforth to be scripture. So even before then, there wasn't any document suggesting that the Apocrypha was scripture. So those are Old Testament apocryphal books. There are also some books that are considered apocryphal New Testament books, uh, and you might hear about them, Apocalypse of Peter, Gospel of Thomas, and you may wonder, they may make you concerned, why aren't those in the scripture too? Kruger in this article points out three things about all the New Testament apocryphal books. They were written in the second century or third century or later. So none of them were written at the same time, in the same century as the New Testament books. They also have doctrine that contradicts New Testament books, such as what I told you about women needing to become men so that they can enter into the kingdom of heaven, right? And then thirdly, none of them in church history were ever serious contenders to be included in the canon. Most of them were ignored or they were straight up condemned by the church fathers. The writers of the confession wanted to make it clear, as opposed to the stance of the Roman Catholic Church, that these books were not inspired by God, the Apocrypha. And therefore, because they weren't inspired by God, they didn't belong in the canon. And because they're not in the canon of scripture, they're not authoritative. They are to be treated like every other human writing. To argue this, the writers of the confession cite two passages. Luke 24, let's look at Luke 24. We'll look at verses 27 and 44. Luke 24, verses 27 and 44. So on the road to Emmaus, Jesus appeared after his resurrection to two of his disciples who at first didn't recognize him, but once he revealed that it was him, verse 27 tells us, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That phrase, Moses and all the prophets, stands and represents the Old Testament scriptures. He walked them through how the Old Testament pointed forward to him. And note that the apocryphal books, even though they existed, are not included there. And then later in verse 44, Jesus is, is speaking to the larger group of disciples, and we read in verse 44, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That phrase, law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, was the threefold division of the Bible, which was understood in Jesus' time as strictly being the Old Testament books that we have today. The Apocrypha, again, was not considered scriptures in that time. So, Jesus appeals to the Old Testament that we have today and none of those apocryphal books. Let's look at one more passage. Romans 3.2. Romans 3.2. We're almost done. Turn your pages faster. Just kidding. Romans 3.2. In Paul's larger argument that both Jews and Gentiles are worthy of God's wrath, he points out that the Jews did have advantages. He asks in Romans 3.1, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? And then he answers in verse 2, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. This phrase, oracles of God, is again referring to the Old Testament scriptures. We should not include the Apocrypha. The advantage that the Jews had is that they were entrusted with Genesis through Malachi. So, the books commonly called Apocrypha, not being of divine inspiration, are no part of the canon or rule of the scripture, and therefore are of no authority to the church of God, nor to be any otherwise approved or made use of than other human writings. Application is uh, anticlimactic, but very easy. Read the Apocrypha if you want. Read it if you want. There is historical value in them. But guard yourself, because they can sound like scripture, but they're not. So read them like you would any non-inspired book. How's that for an ending? There you go. We'll take it. Let's pray. Father, again, we are thankful for, your, for the scriptures that you've given us. And for us to realize that not only was giving it to us in written form for our good and needy, needed for us, but that it is also extremely gracious that you did that. 
we are not left with confusion. Even now, we have the written word, and there is still a lot of confusion because of people who misuse it. But it would be far worse if we didn't have what you've given us. And so we're grateful, Lord, for every one of these books that you have left for us. And we ask that increasingly that you would help us to treasure them. Give us an appetite for your word that, that we would never be able to be satisfied, that we need more and more of you, more and more of your word. Lord, we confess to you that we spend far more time watching episodes of our favorite show than we do in your word. Forgive us, Father, for our, for our misprioritization and help us instead to hunger for your truth and to receive it with all gratitude in your scriptures. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right. Thanks all.